You know, back when Hope invited me to preach while she attended the conference in Atlanta, and I was contemplating what to preach, I was wondering, well, shall I go with one of those golden oldies that all preachers keep in their back pocket in case the minister shows up on Sunday a little bit under the weather? Or should I continue the sermon series that Hope had begun a few weeks ago? We met and we agreed that I would continue with the sermon series as she worked her way through those tough teachings of Jesus as he laid out the foundations of what it meant to be a follower of the way. And I breathed a sigh of relief as the time drew closer and closer for me to preach because I saw that Hope had covered all the really tough stuff in the Gospel of Matthew, <laughs> like murder and adultery and divorce. And I thought, what could be so difficult to do with preaching about committing, committing perjury, about lying under oath? And then I looked at the text. I mean, really, really looked at it. And I had second thoughts about this altogether. So let's listen to what Jesus is really saying to us in Matthew 5, verses 37, 33 to 37. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Amen. So as you, as you have heard over the last few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reminding the crowd gathered, and he's reminding us of things that we already know from the law of God, from the Ten Commandments. Things like, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And today we hear these words as Jesus continues his teaching. Again, you have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, do not swear at all. Back then, everyone, everyone, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, knew that it was against the law to swear falsely under oath. But as it turned out, those who had the unique responsibility to teach the law and keep the law had found unique loopholes to get around the law. They knew that swearing a false oath was a violation of the third commandment. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. And they knew that oaths, by definition, called upon God as witness to corroborate, to attest to a person's words. If you swore falsely, if your words were found to be untrue, you expected to be held accountable to judgment for taking the name of the Lord your God in vain because you would have been guilty of 
using the name of the Lord lightly or profanely, with disrespect, with irreverence. Now the Jews of Jesus' day had a little bit of trouble with the truth. Now they didn't really want to offend God by calling upon his name as they made promises and went about their business dealings or if they just went about their daily work trying to impress one another or exaggerate or stretch the truth a bit. So they came up with a twist on truth-telling. They developed categories of honesty. Some things were more honest than others, some things less so. But they still used oaths to make their words and promises more credible. But to avoid the threat of God's judgment when they had no intention of being honest or upright, they swore by everything except God. They swore by the heavens or by the earth or by Jerusalem or by the temple or just the gold in the temple. Now, I don't think there's any record that I know of in Scripture of anyone swearing on their mother's grave, but at some point... Along the way, things deteriorated to such an extent that oaths became like a contest to see who could invoke the greatest force behind their words or have their words carry the greatest weight, all without invoking the name of God as witness. So it's into this culture of deception and hair-splitting that Jesus cuts to the chase, right to the heart of the matter, And the heart of the matter is the heart. Everything that Jesus says points to the reality that God sees into our heart. And speaking the truth from a truthful heart is everything in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. If we cultivate degrees of truth-telling, if we reserve the truth for those times when we are under oath, and neglect to be scrupulously honest at other times, then we become like the Pharisees on that slippery slope into evil. If oaths become a way of lowering the standard of truthfulness that applies to us at all times as children of a holy and righteous God, then they have become an instrument of evil. Since following the letter of the law led to such abuse and misuse, Jesus addressed the spirit of the law. He says, do not swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And in all of this, we have to remember what Jesus started out saying in the beginning. I have not come to abolish the law. He did say to carry out the vows that you have made, but save those vows and those oaths for the really important occasions, like to resolve a dispute or end a war, to seal an agreement, or to make a covenant, such as marriage. Use them for those times in which you really do mean to call upon the presence of of God as a witness. Now, 
It would be very easy for us to wag our fingers at the Pharisees of old and say, oh yeah, but that was then, and this is now. But if we did that, we'd probably have to ask ourselves the same question that the philosopher who wrote Ecclesiastes said when he came to the conclusion, he says, is there anything new under the sun? And we would have to answer rightly, probably not. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You know as well as I do that we live in a world in which we don't know whom or what we can trust. Truth-telling has become rare in our culture of disinformation and fake news in which the devil is in the details or in the really, really fine print. We have developed euphemisms for lies, for untruths. We don't lie. We just misspeak. And a standard procedure for being caught in a lie is deny, 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 until we take matters very seriously and take full responsibility and admit as little as possible to make it all go away. Now, taking an oath in a court of law does not guarantee that truth will prevail. I learned this personally in my one and only experience so far with the justice system. Either I've been really lucky or really good, and I think I've probably been really lucky, especially driving with my heavy foot. Anyway, this incident happened in Canada, but I'm guessing that it could just as well have happened down here. And it all started out when I was attacked by a Rhodesian Ridgeback dog while out riding my bike and on a quiet Sunday afternoon in our neighborhood. Now, in case you haven't met that breed, it's a pony of a dog that was bred in South Africa to hunt lions and protect the family homestead when the hunters were off hunting lions. I have to say right from the beginning that I, I am a dog, dog lover. And at that time, I had a big dog myself, and he was a beauty. But that's all beside the point. This dog was a menace in our neighborhood. And we lived in a country subdivision that had one main street with several courtyards off of it. And we used to do what we call riding the courts, going around each, uh, each courtyard on the bikes. And as we rode into the last courtyard before returning home on this Sunday afternoon for a nice barbecue and supper, I noticed a woman sitting on her front porch reading her book, and her dog was sitting beside her. We circled peacefully by and continued along our way. And I thought nothing more of it until I saw the dog, this huge 120-pound animal chasing after me. And before I had time to react, he sunk his teeth into my backside. Now, luckily, I was on my bike. If I had been walking, he would have been around my neck. And the danger of this animal was that we lived in a subdivision with many children who constantly rode bikes and scooters and anything by. And this dog was unleashed, unmuzzled, and free. So it was important that this dog be restrained in some way. 
we went through various court procedures. And each time when I came to testify in court, lo and behold, I was presented with a set of facts that had absolutely nothing to do with what happened. And over time, that truth changed as the circumstances changed. And I learned that sometimes truth is not a constant. It's not an absolute. Truth could be negotiable. And it varied according to the audience and what was at stake. And according to how clever the high-priced lawyer was that the family had employed to defend this animal to be free. Well, needless to say, I was disillusioned by this whole experience. I expected that at least in a court of law, truth would prevail. Around about that time, I also learned another lesson about truth that kind of restored my faith in truth. And it happened from a guy named John Doe. And before I go any further, I just have to check. Is there anybody here named John Doe? <laughs> okay. Although it's a fictitious name to protect the guilty, I just wanted to be sure that I wasn't going to open myself to any other court cases. Okay. As some of you know, I, ministry is a second career for me, and I became a theological student in my late 40s. We happened to live at that time about an hour's drive north of the city of Toronto and the University of Toronto where I studied. And since my husband worked downtown, we traveled together. He would drop me off at the subway station and go to his school, and I would catch the train and go to mine. And the shortest route to Knox College, which was the Presbyterian College of the Canadian Church, the shortest distance from the subway stop to the college was through the medical building on campus. So after the long journey, I said, I said we lived an hour north of Toronto, but that was if you were traveling at midnight. It was a lot longer in rush hour. So on the after the long journey, I usually stopped to use the washroom and pick up a coffee and muffin at the shop on the main floor of the medical building. One year, during the winter term, some writing began to appear on the wall of the stall that I typically used. It read, John Doe is a date rapist. Hmm. The next day, more writings appeared on the wall. Other students had dated John Doe, and they discovered the same truth about him. Some offered friendship and urged the original writer to seek justice and have him charged to put him out of circulation. Others offered to befriend the victim and to go with her to counseling. Still others scoffed at the idea of bringing him to trial because, as it happened, his family were well-known in the university circles and his father was a noted judge. On and on the debate raged until there was very little space left on the wall. And I thought to myself, there is something special happening here. 
I'm just going to take the time as I sit here and I'm going to write down all of these comments to have a record of this for posterity. Now all of this happened just before reading week and then we didn't have any classes. And so when I returned to my routine the following week, I noticed that the stall had been wiped clean. The only thing that remained on the wall was John Doe is a date rapist. And the one thing I learned from this is that truth has that lasting quality about it. The bottom line is that the truth will prevail in the end. Whether it's been whitewashed over or scrubbed clean with Mr. Clean, no matter what, even if the truth does not prevail in a court of law, the truth will stand alone in the end, even if it's not on this side of the grave. You know, we live in a world that has set some pretty low standards for truth-telling. We don't expect much. We chuckle when politicians lie to us, saying, what can you expect? What else is new? We coin phrases like buyer beware, expecting that salespeople may just happen to neglect to tell us certain truths or negative uh, factors about something. And even in our personal relationships, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, we tend to excuse the little white lies that seep into our relationships. And the effect of all of this is the erosion of trust. Trust in our leaders and in institutions, trust between individuals, because there is no relationship where there is no trust. There is no intimacy where there is no trust. So it's into this truth vacuum that Jesus calls us to a standard of truthfulness that is infinitely higher than the standards of this world. Jesus is calling us to live with integrity. And that's a pretty high concept. It's sometimes difficult to explain. You know that when we, we know integrity when we see it. When somebody is upright, you know, they just tend to walk a little bit taller. You recognize it. Integrity looks like Jesus, but that's a, a, a pretty high concept to, to wrap our heads around when we try to live with honesty. So I want to share with you what integrity looks like in our everyday life. It looks like a lady named Loretta who made the news recently when she bought a small box of what she thought were Q-tips. She paid 50 cents for them at a local hospital thrift shop. When she got home and opened the box, she discovered that she had walked away with $1,800 worth of jewelry. Some people would be, would be feeling lucky and say, finders keepers, losers weepers. 
But Loretta, without a second thought, turned around and drove back to return the collection because she wanted to be sure that the higher selling price would benefit the most people in the hospital. When she was asked, why didn't you just keep it? She says, you know, I believe that I was meant to find this, so I would bring it back. That's what integrity looks like. So now the question remains, I think, is what effect does living with integrity have on us and on our world? Well, I think it's simply this. To see integrity in action restores our faith in humanity. It shines a light of possibility that is infinitely better than the world in which we know. To live with integrity, to live as if God is our witness to everything we say and do, for believe it, God is surely that, To live like that is to let our light shine before others so that they may see whatever good we may happen to do and glorify our Father in heaven. Friends, this is high calling, to live the whole truth, the whole truth, all the time. But thanks be to God, he provided both the power and the strength of character And he provided the example and the inspiration for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be all glory and honor now and forevermore. Amen.